Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by the amazing David Moser, and, and not the amazing David Mazer. <laughs> um, David is academic director of the CET program here in Beijing, the tickler of ivory and professional interpreter of Chinese dreams. Also joining us today is Jeremiah Jenny, who recently left his position at the IES program in Beijing to direct programming at the Hutong, which is China's premier... The premier cultural exchange center in Beijing. Okay. Jeremiah Jenny is uh, a natty dresser, also a pianist of no mean accomplishment, and a man who even now is trying to think about how he can make an inappropriate joke about the China dream involving male genitalia, no doubt. (laughs) Welcome back to Seneca Jeremiah. Thank you. And I'm not trying to make an inappropriate joke about the China yeah, dream. Yeah, it's yeah. about pianist. Oh, pianist. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's a gimme. That's a gimme. So Jeremy is overwhelmed with work today and unable to join, but he also confessed to me that today's topic made him feel bullshy. I didn't know what that yeah, meant. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, so I, he explained to me that, as I suspected, it was an archaic British slang word derived, as I also suspected, from Bolshevik. And it means like oh. troublemaker or malcontent or a person who is deliberately combative or uncooperative. Oh. Which Bullshit. makes me regret his absence from today's show all the more. Um, anyway, today on Seneca, we are going to explore what, to me at least, is one of the really big questions. Uh, so regular listeners to this show will know that, um, I mean, it's been at the periphery and sometimes, I guess, at the very heart of many of the conversations we've had over the years about modern China. And uh, some would argue, I guess I would include myself in that sum, that it's really the crux of modern China's intellectual history. I'm talking about the, the Chinese project of creating a modernity, a way of being modern that is still Chinese. Uh, my own thinking on this owes uh, enormous debt. I've, I've, I've um, hopefully paid it. But um, to the late Joseph Levinson, who understood modern China's intellectual history in terms of the efforts by Chinese to reconcile what he termed history and value, that is, beliefs about China and uh, and about the world that are bequeathed to them by their history, by by culture, by tradition, in tension with beliefs formed by the you know pitiless and unsentimental evidence of the senses, beginning with the opening salvos of of the Opium War. So, were he alive today, I'm sure he would take sublime if, if tragic satisfaction in knowing that this tension is still very much mm. in play, um, and the range of responses you know, to, to resolve this tension really has spanned the gamut from, you know, the head in the sand kind of traditionalists of, of the late Qing, the self-strengtheners of the latter half of the 19th century, the total, you know, cultural iconoclasts of the May 4th period, the new culture period, and even 100 years ago. Well, you know, I mean, they, they repudiated just about everything that you could call Chinese. And, uh, you know, Jiang Jiexu, Chiang Kai-shek, and, and uh, of course, the nationalists, the communists in their various incarnations, you know, Mao and the Maoists and Deng and the Dongists and even Xi and the Shiites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, what strikes, I think, many of us is, uh, is the, the persistence of, 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 of an idea, or if not the persistence, then, then perhaps the revival of an idea that had its origins in the self-strengtheners that I just mentioned. And, and uh, that's really what we're going to be talking about today, the, the formulation of Ti and, and Yong, that is, of a, of a Chinese essence that might be preserved by selectively adopting Western techniques and technologies or institutions. Zhongqi xiyong is, is the phrase that, that they often use. So I would submit that when we hear protests from the CCP against universal values, uh, when we hear Asian values trotted out, when we see Confucius being retread, when any t- anytime you see with Chinese characteristics getting appended to some ism, we're seeing this essential tension still at work, still playing out. And... Uh, I at least hear echoes of Ti and Jung in, in many of, of the modern responses. I don't know if you guys would agree. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well, good. Then then we have something to talk about. And for our <laughs> listeners who might want to check out some of our archive podcasts where we've talked about this, I would refer you, refer you to the ones that we did with uh, Orville Schell uh, when we talked about the book that he co-authored with John Delury, Wealth and Power, and uh, to the podcast that we've done with uh, Pankaj Mishra, who uh, really makes this a theme, although it's not limited to China. He talks about sort of Asian responses to, um, you know, the, the the various offerings in this contested modernity. So, I mean, I've gassed on long enough here. David, Jeremiah, to what extent are people today inside China, inside the party, outside the party, within the PRC, in other Chinese communities, still asking really the same questions that Chinese intellectuals have asked since the Opium War. I mean, is the whole Tea and Yung formulation still kind of relevant? And what are the range of, 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 of answers that are sort of now on offer? Who wants to go first? You guys are looking at each other I, in front. Well, Jeremiah is really the one to go with, with this, but I just want to mention one difference, which has to be realized, which is I think we agreed at the self-strengthening movement when the, when the, for it, when the dichotomy Tea Yung first arose, the threat was a really existential one. They were they were trying to uh, to keep from being annihilated culturally, and the adoption of uh, these Western technology was seen. Uh, the, the The default assumption then was, of course, they weren't going to touch the core in terms of values, but they did need to import uh, science, right. weaponry, and and so so forth. And that those that line became blurred along the way, so that they actually started the debate brought into other things besides hard what we would just call hardware technology. But I think that the difference now, even though, as you, as you said, there's a lot of examples, but where the Tiung dichotomy comes up now, it's not so much in the face of, uh, of survival, because China's often, uh, obviously come quite right. a way yeah, it's beyond that. Existential threat. But it's still present in the, the idea of, of this, this desire upon, uh, on the part of the government, and I guess and also part of lots of cultural critics, to, to not let this this core would, uh, you know, the Chinese essence be erased by rampant modernization, you know, and West part of a nationalistic kind of a street. But I don't know if Jeremiah has anything. Well, I guess I should so certainly just, just interject really quickly that I don't mean that it, it remains undiluted, I mean, in its original form. I mean, that, that, right. that, I mean what I'm, I'm talking about pretty faint echoes of it, but it's still, you know, it's still an important touchstone. It's, it's something I, I still hear. So, Jeremiah, what about you? What, what, um, just, just, to, to my question, are these the same basic questions uh, you, you'd say that, that, you know, how to be modern and, uh, or how, how to exist in, you know, a modern world, and how to resolve this essential, that, that Levinsonian uh, tension? The Levinsonian tension between trying to reconcile that which is true and that which is mine. Right. I mean, it's a little arrogant to say what, what is true as though, you know, the, the, there, there's this... Levinson know. arrogant? How dare you? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, to pick up on what da what David was saying too, you you do have this kind of interesting transition over time. I mean, over the last hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty or so years, you know, from immediately after, say, the Opium War, where it was just we just need that cool toys, those guns, those ships, to we need the know how to know how to make those guns and ships, to we need to have the background in the sciences and mathematics that gets us the know-how to make those guns and ships to we need to develop institutions to get the background. Right. To, and it is kind of built on itself um, throughout the 19th and well into the 20th century. And I think, you know, apart from the head-in-the-sand conservatives of the Qing era, I mean, people like Warren and, and that kind of clique, what you have beginning pretty much with right around the time of the Opium War, with scholars like, for example, Wei Yuan, who mm -hmm. was featured in um, Orville Shell and John right, DeLary's yeah, book, yeah, is this one question that keeps recurring, which is how can we 
create a modern, strong, independent China that is still at its root Chinese. Right. And what is interesting, of course, if you want, I mean, this picks up what Kaiser was saying about this central problematique, is that the question has remained remarkably constant over the last 160 years, while the answers have been incredibly different. Mao Zedong's answer to this was very different than, say, a 19th century statesman like Zhang Guofan. And as we know, Deng Xiaoping's answer to this was very different than Mao and on and on. But what is striking to me is how the question has remained consistent, and not even at the very highest levels of government, but also if we want to think about how China's cities have been developed, the idea of what kind of urban spaces are modern, and if we want to think about how China's culture has even developed in the last 20 or 30 years, what does it mean to be a modern Chinese? It's if there, is a, if there is some kind of confusion here, if there is some kind of confusion on the part of those of us who observe China, well, it's only natural because these questions, I think we can agree, have yet to be fully reconciled, even after all this time. What, I, what, what really is, is uh, you're exactly right. And um, what, what interests me is uh, how sort of state thinking, at least, thinking within the party, has sort of converged, at least, around a certain set of ideas of what is Chinese. It's not, diff- it's not hard, I think, for, uh, for us to sort of strip away and sort of through, through um, you know, kind of the, the, the carving out of, you know, what it isn't sort of to try to figure out what Chineseness is. Um, those, this whole project that I've described, especially with the, the whole litany of, of, of examples like, you know, opposition to universal values, insistence on, on, on Asian ones or the Yudan style, you know, repackaging of Confucius or, uh, you know, the whole Chinese characteristics things and, you know, Chinese, Chinese roads to modernity, uh, all produces, let's be honest, I mean, a lot of eye rolling, right? <laughs> no, we, it does. It, it does. I mean, David, I mean, I, I, you're, you're, is it, so laughable, though. I mean, is it so ridiculous to suggest that there really ought to be different ways of being modern or to posit that there really is something kind of intrinsically Chinese, something worth defending or holding up in resistance to the kind of Tom Friedmanization of the yeah. world? Well, I find it interesting that you, you say that. For those of us in Beijing, you go out on the street. In fact, right down the street here in this alleyway, there's this big billboard that, that proclaims what the party has deemed to be st- core socialist values. And what are they? It's things like, like freedom, them, right. rule of law, right? Uh, e- equality, um, what else? Uh, uh, civility, harmony. Uh, justice. justice. Justice, right. Gung Zheng is yeah. And then democracy. Yeah. Now some, now some of these are, 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 you know, something like harmony is definitely a Confucian value, but then stuck in the middle there is democracy? Humanist, and, 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 and rule of law. I mean, what a hodgepodge! And eye rolling is right. And, and if when I, I always see that as their, their attempt to to assert, you know, that this now is the T. You know, this is this, these are the core values. They're telling us explicitly this is what they are. Where did these come from? And and what and the irony of that some of them overlap with what you just were talking about as universal values, which we would say democracy is one of those. And the Chinese have resisted that sort of talk for a long time, and here they are. I mean, it makes my head spin. I don't know what to make of it exactly. No, oh, it's, it's it's very interesting. I mean, they, they, there is there are efforts to codify this all the time. I mean, you know, there's the eight glories and the eight shames. Right. Uh, if you go on like uh, Baidu, Baike, you know, on Baidu Encyclopedia, and you look up, you know, Zhonghua Minzu the Meide, you'll 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 yeah. actually find you know these right. these quite earnest. Uh, explanations of what the values are and what they entail and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, you know, when when we're on the subway, we're constantly reminded that, you know, 尊老爱幼是中华民族的那个传统美德, <laughs> right. 
respect for the elderly and love for children is the traditional virtue of the Chinese. Um, the, even even that, I mean, as much as uh, you, you chuckle at that, I I I kind of buy. I mean, I do believe sure. that that is is one of the things yeah. that sort of irreducibly. Over, I mean, it's not uniquely Chinese, certainly to, to respect for the elderly, right, and, right. you know, family. Yes, exactly. Why wasn't that on the billboard? I, I think there is something like yeah. that. Or, anyway, on some level, this could be a, an attempt to define what is the Chinese values, but I also think they also represent a real struggle to define what is modernity. And by that I mean, if you take a look at the things or the characteristics or the ideas or the behaviors that have been internalized in China over the, in the 20th century as being what, char- what is a modern society or a modern person or modern behavior. And also this kind of term of modernity gets blended in with that other kind of hard to define term civilization oh, it's, it's, when it's, Ming. it's yeah. exactly the same thing but what i what i find striking about it is how many of these things are often responses or in response to what is perceived as criticisms of behavior or criticisms of china from outside and this goes back even to the early 20th century you know if you take a look at the list of things that reformers wanted to focus on to modernize chinese society it was very often those things that were first on the list of criticisms leveled at China by outside observers, missionaries, and the like, spitting, foot-binding, concubinage. These were not necessarily things that internally many Chinese found to be problematic, but they were the things that if we wanted to present a modern face to the world, these are the things we had to handle. And today, of course, as our city gets ready for APEC to arrive, which is starting to sound like some kind of disaster movie, <laughs> it is all the signs I see in my neighborhood are about what we should do, but there's that underlying subtext of we have to present the Wenming, we have to right. present the modern and the civilized because we can't be criticized. And I think that's a, that's a really kind of interesting twist to this because if you're chasing a modernity that is ultimately defined by others, and this right. gets to well, the argument that Pankaj Mishra makes, if you're constantly chasing this, it can be, one, extremely frustrating because you feel like every time you get there, the other pulls the goalpost a little bit further away. And it can also be ultimately unsatisfying, too, because you're always looking at an external locus of your own internal dynamic, and the result is you're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if this also explains some of the frustration that, for example, the government and many people feel about sort of the perceptions of China from abroad. Like, look at what we've accomplished. Look at what we've accomplished. We've checked all the boxes on the list that you've left us. But yeah, yet it's still not there yet. Right, right. Uh, two things. I mean, first, uh, the old historian saw, if you want to know what practices were prevalent in a society, you just need to look at what signs they put up to, to say, don't do this. Don't, I mean, right. uh, it's, it's, it will conclude, obviously, you know, a thousand years from now that people spat all the time because there were so many you know, don't spit signs and please don't shit in this toilet because, and people shit in easily clogged toilets all the time, right? Because there are so many signs that said that. I, I actually can empathize with the frustration that a lot of people, Chinese people feel at the kind of general timbre of, of, of Western critique. I mean, surprise, surprise. Uh, I mean, reform era, China, it's, we're always saying, you know, is, is a spiritual void, um, you know, but then the West mocks anything <laughs> and every anything that any, anyone kind of offers up to, in an effort to fill that void. 
you know, uh, yeah, the spiritual void. But uh, don't you dare, you know, try to popularize Confucianism. That's a joke. Uh, you, you know, you Westerners have made plain your belief that in the last few decades we've gone too far with the Jung and the neglect of the tea. But you seem to have a problem uh, with the very conceit that there is a tea worth worth protecting. Um, I mean, it's 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 got to be pretty frustrating, and I, I kind of think that um, you know I like to, to look at uh, Western attitudes toward this whole project of preserving you know the Chinese quintessence. Um, there's a strange mix. I mean, if I look at my my foreign friends here in in in, in Beijing, there's kind of uniform horror at the thought of bulldozing the old buildings in in Gulo neighborhood. To your point about you know cities. Uh, lots of nods of agreement when you say something like, you know, the good aspects of traditional Chinese culture were kept alive better in Taiwan than they were here on the Chinese mainland. Yeah, I hear that all the time. They hear that all the time. Um, but I sense a kind of flat-out contempt for most of, 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 of anything that official China tries to define as the baby in, in that bathwater. That, that well, p- part of the problem is something uh, it would maybe be good to just mention again that we mentioned on a previous podcast, which is that the the not the Chinese not the Communist Party but all throughout the search for for wealth and power in, in Orville Schell and in Delury's book, China tried on so many uh, governance models and so many solutions to the problem, and then went through a, uh, a chaotic period during the Mao era where they tried Marxism Leninism and Mao Zedong thought, and then then completely abandoned that after reform and opening up. They, they've switched costumes so much that the people are to be forgiven for not really under, knowing what's left. Uh, you know, they've, they've systematically eradicated or at one time or another repudiated the, what, what, what before that right. point was one of the core values. And so that's why something like trying to resuscitate Confucius has such an awkward forced feeling to it. And they'll do such silly stuff like put his statue of him on Tiananmen Square, a stone's throw from Mao's mausoleum, which causes all sorts of laughter because... Are you serious? Just a couple decades ago, you were repudiating this guy. It's like put a statue of Lin Biao next to him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, the confusion is partly the result of the communists. They've, they've, uh, whatever you call that, to drop a stone, stone on your foot. foot. Yeah. Well, I, I think that part of that, too, is that, if, I mean, we were, you were talking, David, you were saying something I think was very important when we're trying to compare today and, you say, the self-strengthening right. era that there, there was the today we're not china is not facing that kind of existential threat i'll give you one other very important difference too really up until the may 4th movement but maybe even a little earlier at least up until the first decade of 20th century there was very little question i think about what that tea what that essence should be even your most radical reformers of the 19th century and think about people like kang yo Wei, who mm-hmm argued this long essay that Confucius, if he was alive today, would be a reformer. And then later on, went into flights of fancy about unified world government and racial harmony and all kinds of very interesting divergences. But he never strayed from this idea that Confucianism was a universal value that was applicable or synonymous with civilization. It was a living, breathing entity that flowed and it made, it made sense to the world and it gave the world its shape. Well, wait a minute. Let me back up a little bit. That he that it should be, or that it was the the most it highly was developed. The, he wasn't under any illusions that the world was following along. No, not at all. But there was no. But also, he didn't necessarily see it as something particular to Chinese civilization. Ah, yeah. He just gets it into just, a little bit of truth. Levinsonian. Right. Yeah, when, he, right. when he wrote about Datong, I mean, when he did yeah. that, that 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 sort of of his his utopian ideal, grand commonality. It was, it was ab- absolutely drawn from. Uh, you know, the four books and the five classics. But the iconoclasm 
and this is a, sort of what Dave was, Dave was getting to, too, that you saw in the 20th century, the adoption and repudiation, adoption and repudiation of so many things, including, of course, the repudiation during the New Culture era and later of Confucianism, of Confucianism as, as a, as a stand-in for traditional Chinese society, created a situation where then all of a sudden that which was ours isn't ours anymore. Or if it is, it's ours as a collectible on the mantelpiece. Mm-hmm. And that makes it very difficult in this time, as you said, to try to define what that essence is. Either you're drawing from a hodgepodge of values that just sound good to you, like on a banner, or you're trying to you know, bring back Confucius like, you know, He's as if he's some sort of, um, you know, guest or something that you can just like, hey, yeah. I was so sorry we left you outside in the hall for 120 well, years, we, but we, welcome we, in. We need you now. Yes. Come back again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when we talk about the, the May 4th New Culture Movement, uh, I, I guess maybe it's just been the habit of, 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 you know, studying history and just tending to, to – to, uh, Assume that that, that that was the dominant intellectual ethos of the day, and I, we have to remember that that there were yeah there were you know a, the, a handful they weren't even a, they were you know they were they were numerous, but not everyone was a full blown cultural iconoclast at they that were time. The elite, there were a lot of people. Some yeah, I mean, even even within within the the educated elite, there it was it was hotly contested. It was contested even within the pages of of the the magazines that they. That they really kind of held, the, you know, carried the banner for for the new culture movement, like you know, Cincinnia. That's true, except that if we we think about that, most of the influential leaders of the 20th century either came out of that era or were directly influenced by the elitist ideas of that era. Sure, I think that it's it's hard to understate the importance, even you know, even if something like. New Youth, Xinjiang, was only read by a handful of kind of elite scholarly types and their young followers. Its influence on how the direction of Chinese intellectual history and then ultimately political history was so um, so important. And you're right. I mean, the iconic. What's interesting about the iconoclasm of the new of the new culture movement wasn't just that it was one kind of iconoclasm. You had repudiations coming from all directions. Yeah, you had sure. anarchism yeah. and socialism right. and all these different things. But one thing they could all seem to get on board with it was free love. No. Well, <laughs> everyone except for Lu Xun, who 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 was all right with free love as long as he was loving freely. But most of, I mean, almost one thing that most of the different strains of thought in the new culture movement could get on board with was that Chinese traditional culture, you know, at some form had to either be adapted or done away with or just... There was something about it that sure. was holding us well, these back. Are the, these were the arguments they were having. These were exactly. the arguments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I bring this up just because I want uh, I want to move the, the, the conversation into today, mm-hmm. and I want to understand that that there are other answers, there are other other yes. um, suggestions besides just the ones that we see uh, coming from um, state actors and from 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 the party. So I want to kind of try try something here. I want to see if we can describe the different categories on the Chinese political and ideological spectrum in terms of how they would resolve that fundamental tension we've been talking about in terms of, you know, their relationship with tradition and their, you know, ideas of modernity. I don't know if you guys saw there was this 
good little piece by Sebastian Veg that ran in The Diplomat the other day on China's political spectrum under Xi Jinping where kind of laid out two perpendicular axes, predictably, you know, one that kind of ran between social protection versus economic reform, sort of the you know, economic left and right, and then another sort of the political left and right, the capitalism, um, I mean, I'm sorry, the, you know, democracy versus uh, CCP power and authoritarianism on the other. So there's four boxes that generate, that get generated out of this, and maybe we can just sort of use this heuristic and we got liberals, right? We those liberals are pretty easy to understand, right? These are economically on the right, and and uh, they're, they're sort of you know the libertarian axis, if, if you will, neoliberal plus uh, very much uh, about democracy and and uh, reduction of state power. There, these guys, we we understand. I mean, maybe if you take Liu Xiaobo as an example, of it, I mean, he's an unalloyed, you know, Westernization person, right? I mean, he's 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 basically there is no. Uh, Chinese ness that he cl- seeks to to protect, right? That's fair to say. No, yeah, he's probably as close as you can come to a, belie- a firm believer in universal values. Right, yeah. he is an absolute believer in universal values. Um, so they're pretty easy. I mean, we we, we kind of understand where they sit. Uh, they don't. They're not hung up. They don't seem to be hung up on on preserving. I mean, we're using the word loosely. This this Chinese tea. You don't look like you're, you're sold on that idea, Jeremiah. You're kind of looking skeptically at me. I'm curious what options B, C, and D are, but the uh, what I might argue, and I, again, Leo Xiaobo is kind of a, extreme a, case, an extreme sure. case, but I, I do see a lot of not necessarily wholesale buying into Westernization or simply saying universal values, yep, they're for me. Uh, I see a lot of actually what you know someone like Kanye used to do, which is to try to stretch Chinese culture or to, Chinese values to include these things and to try to make them try to in some ways say that this is they're not in opposition with our culture they're actually something that could be part of our culture and you see a lot of people do it looking historically or anthropologically or other ways to try to find elements of these things in a kind of Chinese version of these things and I, I think that's a, a more interesting project on the other hand people who try to do that are often labeled by their opponents as, you know, westernizers, you know, universal love, universal, va- sorry, I just say that, universal <laughs> value <laughs> lovers. That still doesn't sound right, but we'll go with it. Lovers of universal value. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, you know, one problem with all of this is is that the party has adopted some of these things, and and, and even the May 4th intellectuals would adopt these things not as universal values as such, but as just tools, right? The, it was an pragmatic tools right, to to, of, to create wealth or to solve the problem. And I, if you're doing that, then you haven't really adopted the values. You've you've adopted a. It's like it's this like is adopting why, market forces. Why it's still ultimately Jung rather than yes, just, exactly. Right, right, right. You've adopted why. free market, and that's why they always attach with Chinese characteristics to all these things because they haven't adopted them wholesale with all the concomitant. Uh, value systems that come with it, they want to adopt it for, as a tool. It, they, uh, the best example of that is the internet, which they grudgingly accepted as part of it, you know, because it was an essential tool. But at the same time, their first their first instinct was to make it an intranet instead of an internet. Well, I, I don't think that's true. I don't you think don't that, think so? No, no, no. But, well, so. they seem to, tr- to make noises that that's what they wanted to do. But they're effectively trying to do that now still. But the point is that you adopt this thing, this, this tool... Without realizing that that 
tools all come uh, with the tool comes the concomitant sort of ideology of the host originator of the culture that originated. I mean, you can't adopt something like an internet uh, well, without can, can without we, the implication can, can that it's really all about. Can we say that that belongs to the West? That, that that's something that I mean, it, 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 when the origination point was only a decade or two, you know, before the, its adoption. I don't like, think it matters. Uh, I, I think that Chinese would certainly see it that way. But the the point is that they came late to it. They they let it in. It they came a little late to it, and and they came ten years late to it. Are you kidding? No, I mean, come on. Look, what, 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 how many internet users were there in in when in 1996 when you know we first started seeing the internet trickle into China? It wasn't huge. I mean, there were some people on Prodigy or or you know AOL. I you suppose, know, I, but, but I don't think that's the, that's not my argument though. I mean, the point is that that the internet as a tool carries with it a kind of implicit kind of organizational ideology which is premised on things like free free access to information otherwise it just doesn't work i think that that's that that's uh, that isn't that doesn't inhere in the internet that does not inhere this is not it's not something that that uh was originally a part of this wasn't something that was no, I, I, I don't know. It's like well, we could have this. We could have this argument. Super highways were without speed limits. We can or, argue about the internet, but I think for for certainly things like free markets, doesn't that come with any implicit uh, uh, T? You can't just take that as a tool, right? It it has organizational aspects. To sure, it, right? I mean, sophisticated modern capital. Um, yeah, right. of course. There, right. There's, it, there's, there's it has implications it for how to order a society. Right. right. And science. I mean, right. And uh, science. The same, the same way. Go, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. But I, I mean, okay, I, I throw think the, the internet, internet out. But I mean, my point is, is that is not the internet, but that. I believe that's the government strategy. But in any case, but let, let me, let me the, go on with, with this, 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 these, you know, different boxes and see how we, we can, if we can kind of take a stab at, at uh, you know, putting them in. Uh, I'm just because I, I always want to finish these things. I, I, <laughs> I always go back and listen to these shows. I forgot we were doing boxes. Right, right. we're doing right. boxes go, go back, still. So we, we talked about the, the, the social democrats and the intra-party reformers, right? Um, those people are sort of, you know, uh, uh, ones who are, you know, care very much about income equality and, and income distribution, uh, and but at the same time are are wary of excessive state statism, right? Who, who, what is what is that? I mean, who who falls into that category? I mean, I think we, you know, these are are sort of uh, reformers within the within the, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you know, a lot of the older statesmen, uh, the, the 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 sort of party elders. Um, if you look at the the policies that that, that are the cr- criticisms, especially that that they uh, fire against. Uh, are often, you know, championing things like freedom of expression and things like that. So they're they're an, an interesting uh, case. We can look at uh, the the old and new left, which Sebastian Veg puts into one box. What are they? What? How do they resolve the the, the contradictions? And then, of course, China model, China dream, um, Xi Jinping uh, kind of mainstream, which is now quite statist, but also quite uh, neoliberal. I'm quite, quite interested in, in, in economic reform, as we've said before. So I think each of them, I, when, I, when I read this thing and, and, and I was thinking about this show, it just struck me that this might be an interesting exercise to try to, to map them in, in terms of their response to, to this. Is that going to work? <laughs> I, I can talk about the issues. I'm weak on the personalities. You might be no. We don't need to. That. We don't need to say personalities. Yeah. I mean, we're just we're, we're talking about you know political orientations in in the Chinese political spectrum of today, and how they orient in in that that tension between you know history and value. That tension between you know uh, Chineseness, the preservation thereof, 
and sort of the cosmopolis. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's nationalism is mixed in there. Absolutely. Face is mixed in there, which are both very powerful forces. But but certainly nationalism, which is another kind of survival, no, no longer survival of, of, of this piece of land, and, and there are people here exactly, but of the culture. So that's statism, nationalism, chauvinism, whatever you want to call it, right? So uh, the, it seems like that cuts a broad swath across many, many lines. I mean, a even, couple of these boxes, yeah. through a couple of these yeah. boxes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the new even, left even the Xi Jinping, the broad masses, That's right. you would find broad uh, instinctual agreement, you know, that uh, when the government says things like uh, Zhu Chan trumps Ren Chan, there's a lot of people that that buy that. And they, they, they use this term Guoqing, you know. Yeah, I was going to bring that damn up. Damn it, we have a different Guoqing. And I think that's... Explain what Guoqing means. It's sort of Chinese exceptionalism, maybe. Or yeah. Or sort of the, the, if, the, if you take the abstract word, it, it just simply means that a nation's particular cultural character, I mean, right. national characteristics, or including geography, for that, for, you know, for that matter, or history. But in the Chinese case, they use it as... Uh, you know, this catchword that, that says, we came from a different place, we evolved differently, we have a different set of objective conditions, we have a different number of people, our population is huge, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, this is one of the things they push aside universal values, mm -hmm. saying, yes, we pursue modernity, but don't impose the value systems, the neoliberal, you know, or the Washington consensus on us. We have a different path to take. The Eric X. Lee uh, Eric X. Lee would be on the... Where would he right. be in? Which box would he be in? <laughs> um, I, I think he's he's pretty solidly in, in the Xi Jinping box. I mean, he's, you know, stridently nationalistic, stridently uh, very much in the sort of uh, neoliberal camp in terms of his economic policies, but his statist. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, one of the things that it, it comes, cuts through there is this notion of an exceptionalism. And I, I think it's one of the more defining characteristics of the, the of China today. You can make an argument that one reason why the U.S. and China sometimes or often fail to get along is all countries have an exceptionalist, exceptionalism attached to them, but China and the U.S. perhaps wear their exceptionalism a little more on the sleeves than yeah. other nations. But I would, I would also, I'd also say just kind of taking a look at one of these boxes, which is the, the new and old left, you know, thinking about how they might look at this well, they might go back to a traditional idea of, of Marxism, which is that capitalism is actually kind of not modern, that there is a higher form um, that surpasses or goes beyond capitalism. And this is one reason why Marxism was attractive in the very beginning to many Chinese intellectuals, because it was something that was more modern. Here's something that we can adopt that makes us modern, and yet does not allow, does not mean we have to become Western, because of course Marxism does not come from the West. We learned our Marxism from Russia. From Russia, right. and 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 to add to that, it it contains a critique of our oppressor. It it exactly it, it, it has in it. It's built in, in, indeed on a critique of, of what it is that has. It explains our our weakness and all that. So yeah, it was it had a very natural appeal, I think, and and it, it retains, I think, for the new and old left part of that of that appeal. It's interesting, um, David. When we were chatting before the the, the show, though. You, you would, besides talking about the the billboard and the, the funny, you know, uh, utterances, you know, the Gongzheng and then the Hsia mm. and all that stuff. Oh, you you had given me a, a kind of list of of other uh, things that are routinely trotted out that you find kind of are, are uh, interesting expressions of the party's efforts, often very clumsy efforts, um, you know, to 
established a tea essence in the in the process of building a modern state. Um, I mean, you talked about like the Olympics, for example. I mean, you know, what was their their solution to like selling the core essence during the '08 Olympics? Well, I think the the Olympics was a fascinating case, and it's right, it very vivid, it's still in our memories, and the buildings are still you know, reminding us that they they were forced uh, faced with uh, you know this this Olympic decision of of presenting the the you know the the essence of China to the world. It was this coming out party, exactly. Right. Although that phrase has been banned. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I banned it. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and so it was very interesting to some of us that, first of all, it was very interesting that, that Mao and Deng were banned, or at least not invited to the party. Right. They were totally absent from the party, which was the core, one of the, you know, what you could say was the core of Chinese civilization, or at least PRC, during those 30 years during Mao, and they just, you know, didn't invite him back to the party. Um, the other thing was that they they uh, pulled back to and, and pulled out Confucius, obviously, mm-hmm. and that was part of the opening ceremony. And what was fascinating to me also was these these mascots, these five friendlies, who embodied among many things, the, you know, Xing, the, yeah. the, the but and among many things, the five uh, Olympic sport, the, the five rings, and this and that, and they were, they were overladen with symbolism. Um, but but the five elements, yeah, right. which. Which is so amazing. These We're talking about feng the, the Fuwa. Remember these the guys? Fuwa. The five. Yeah. What do they call them in English? The five friendlies yeah. or something. I think they changed that name, right? But these 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 five friendlies that were designed by committee were a conscious and long-standing, you know, attempt. It took it took years to develop this concept of this is the essence of Chinese cu- culture. The, the, seriously, there's something that's that's part of you know maybe traditional well, Chinese medicine, but it's been, too, right? been yeah. long ago relegated it had to be to collectible by small children. You know, which but this is this is another example of the clumsy, sort of seemingly bizarre, misguided attempt to. to they, they almost they're they're so much they're so empty it seems of anything that's that springs naturally to mind as as this the current core essence. They sort of pulled something that. It was almost like you could get it from the Encyclopedia Britannica of what defines China rather than from, you know, their own culture. They, they said, oh, let's see, the five elements, that must be it. Oh, TCM, you, you mentioned that as well, traditional Chinese medicine. Do we want to touch that one or we're going to get hate mail every time we, every time we talk about TCM, <laughs> we get hate mail? Oh, you can't go there. I was going to, I mean, I, I think David makes a really good point and And I, you know, there seems to be a lot of awkward silences when trying to figure these things out and when people try to explain them from the government side. And I think part of it is because most, even the people who are kind of espousing this idea of Chinese dream or Chinese essence or Olympic spirit or what have you, realize that if you unpack it, it suddenly starts to look really much more complicated and messy than the public face you want to show right. and you, a really you good can example of a sanitized version of it. You yeah. can't. And a really good example of this. I know not all of our listeners are in Beijing, but if you are, I highly recommend spending an afternoon when it's very warm outside and going to the national museum on the Tiananmen square and going through the exhibit called road to rejuvenation. Mm-hmm. This is the origin story 
of modern China, as the Communist Party has told it, the fall from grace at the hands of foreigners and feudalism, the redemption by Mao Zedong with Sun Yat-sen playing kind of John the Baptist. And if even as you're walking through this, there's rooms of gray and brown and dark of the bad old days, and then you turn a corner and it is like the Wizard of Oz when it goes technicolor, <laughs> but it's only red. And the things that they display in those rooms of China's rejuvenation are interesting hodgepodge of technological achievements yeah. and foreign friends congratulating China. And but don't worry, there is historical accuracy. And if you look in a small corner in a, a very casually title section called Bumps to the Roll Bumps on the Road to Socialism, there's a picture that shows the Cultural Revolution, kinda. And a picture <laughs> that shows the Great Leap Forward. Kinda. But Bumps. you know, anything else that's even remotely problematic narrative is left out. That said, it is not, I mean, it's not designed to go there and roll your eyes if you really want to understand how the Communist Party wants their history to be understood. This is the place to do it. Mm -hmm. And it is really educational, although I'm kind of a geek so, on these things. So the, the, the effect is, yes, come, here's China. Look at these, uh, you know, s uh, fantastic science fiction buildings and look at all this stuff. Oh, by the way, did I mention that we have 5,000 years of, of civilization? <laughs> it's like this, that's almost tacked on as much as, as the, the Jung part. And this gets, this gets into the other question, too, which is, I think, probably another topic of soft power. Mm -hmm. um, a good friend of ours, the writer uh, Brendan O'Kane, once wrote an essay about peaking opera masks, that when China wants foreigners to look at China and admire it, they want to say, look at our peaking opera mask. We have great history and we're going to put this peaking opera mask in front of this wonderful building that is this modern you know um modern this monument to technological and economic achievement mm -hmm. but we're going to tell you what you need to admire you know we don't want to leave that to chance I mean, what's the Peking Opera Mask supposed to be a metaphor for? I mean, the way that, that they're always, they, they carry so much sim symbolic It's, it's not a metaphor. It's that Chinese history is so messy that if you look at it too carefully, you might lose the message. So we're just going to show you, no metaphor, this really nice Peking Opera Mask for oh, you to okay. admire. Please do not ask any questions about anything else. So yeah, that, that's something that, that's always struck me. Uh, that so many of the um, the Chinese characteristics seem like they're just sort of painted on as an afterthought. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of architecture that, that, that just is given a little bit of a uh, flourish. This is probably the worst in, in the early 90s when all the buildings along Chang'anjia, they suddenly, like, put a, a Chinese hat atop yeah. an otherwise really bland building. But, you know, now it's got sort of these faux tile, um, you know, sweeping angled roofs on, on top. Yeah. And I think... You know, I, th this might get to uh, something that, uh, that that Jeremy was railing about and, and wanted us to mention in a certain way. That you know, part of the problem with the PRC is that that a lot of this modernization has been a top-down imposition. You know, they have not let it spring organically from the people. Uh, and uh, you know, the, despite the fact that they are the ones who say that, that the people are rule the country. You know, the People's mm -hmm. Bank and everything. Mm -hmm. Actually, the people don't have any say so in it. So even even something like Chang'an Boulevard, they have the most schlocky, awful-looking sort of arches and stupid stuff that reflects the taste of the party, of a small group of people in the party rather than the people. And I, I think that, that well, if, if there is a tea, if there's an essence, I think it's a very, I think, and I think there is, I actually lo love Chinese culture and the essence that I can come in contact with, I love it, but, but it has to evolve naturally and organically. It has to change. It has over to time. come from right from yeah. from, from, from and, the roots. And and here in this country, th that has been impeded. That process has been impeded 
um, and in fact, just short-circuited and, 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 and strangled over the course of the decades by the party. And, and so a lot of people are well-disposed and, and, and are actually can recognize the, the, the richness of the cultural tradition, but it, it, it's been so hackneyed and stereotyped and, and parts of it off-limits and then you know, dragged back again, resuscitated corpse-like, that, that the people, the, the people are, you get these weird Frankensteinian architectural things as people literally don't know how, how to in- integrate all this into moder- modernity because right. they haven't been given the, the choice. The impulse is always there, though. I mean, we're all culture creators. I mean, I can speak from my own experience. So, you know, when I, I came here and I started you know, a, a band and I wanted to play this this in this musical idiom that was clearly not Chinese in, in, in origin, my first impulse was to try to find whatever areas of commonality there were in something that could be recognizably Chinese, to give it a name that kind of was a cipher for... The pentatonic you know, scale? Exactly, the, exactly <laughs> yeah. the pentatonic scale, oh. and, you know, exactly for lots of fourths and fifths. And, and, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, pentatonic melodies, I mean, and they were close enough to blues, you just don't, don't have that flatted... Hmm. And then, but that otherwise, it's it's, uh, it's uh, so yeah. I, I I tried to do that. We you know we, but I think there are a lot of people who who have kind of, uh, and their their whole approach is uh, just kind of to give it a patina of Chineseness mm-hmm. uh, on on something that's and that's that's it's a strange inversion of of it. I mean, where the exterior has some superficial Chinese resemblance, uh, you know, some some qualities that may be, uh, you know, uh, on the surface quite Chinese, but Inside, you've got this. I mean, I, I, the, the building I work in is is a bit like that. It's an extremely modern building, but uh, there there are I think, quite clever architectural flourishes that evoke pieces of, of you know elements of Chinese architecture, but they're done with modern materials. It's not mm. it's, it's not done. Uh, you, but you guys, you know, you, you're you're also involved in culture creation. And do you, well, don't do you, you think, it? Jeremiah? Don't you think because you did a you know you you and you're now in a you know a cultural well, you're, where you're talking about right? You're, you're explaining China to people now, right? Explaining China, but don't don't you think in those areas where the uh, Chinese people have been free to develop forms that that they've done so with Chinese characteristics and they actually. Work. There's 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 literary forms. They've adopted things like science fiction, and then they've made it something that's very Chinese, even though it's Chinese fiction. What do you think about that, Jeremiah? One of the worst things you can ever try to do is give yourself a nickname. Why? Because if you ta- start calling yourself something, it just sounds stupid. You have to let that kind of thing grow organically. Ah, yes, I see your point. Yeah. You know, if someone else gives you a nickname and it sticks, that's that's cool. okay. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the things we have here is there's a natural reaction on the part of many people from outside China against anything that feels like this is what you should be seeing or this is what you should be appreciating as China. Mm-hmm. There's a and I, resu- I, I don't really know where that comes from per se, but I do know that there's when I when we when I invite students to come to China or we see travelers who come to China, one of the things they always talk about is looking for authenticity. Yeah. Where is the authentic China? And sometimes it's, it's even a little misguided because this notion that, well, if it has anything to do with the 20th century or 21st century or anything, it can't, it, be, authentic. it can't be authentically China, which is, of course, going way too far in the other direction. Right. Sure. But it does kind of strike me that this is a problem that so long as, as you said, the government dictates what is modern or what is to be admired, well, there's always going to be this reaction against it. And I, what I worry about is that the people who are in charge of determining what is to be admired and what is to be modern, 
just don't get that because you see it over and over again the same kind of they run the same play from the same playbook and it never works out the way they intended right <laughs> okay an interesting discussion thanks guys mm-hmm. uh let's move to recommendations jeremiah what do you have for us Okay, yeah, we'll start with David. You're frantically uh, getting yours out. Um, I'm totally hooked on this new Deng Xiaoping uh, TV series. Ah, right. That, uh, what's it called again? Li Shi Zhuan Zhe Deng Xiaoping, I think, something like that. Li Shi Zhuan Zhe Yeah, uh, the Deng Xiaoping in the midst of uh, historical yeah, transitions, whatever. Mm-hmm. It is so amazing. You've got it's on YouTube, so it's easily watchable. And I think they're up to what, like eight episodes or nine epito- episodes it's now. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Yes. So, so who's been uploading it to YouTube? I don't know. That's, that's, that's great. This is interesting since it's blocked here, but the government doesn't seem to mind, you know, putting their stuff on it. But it, it's it's available elsewhere. I've just been downloading it on YouTube, but. It is so interesting to watch. It's not good. It's schlocky. It's 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 so the same as as all the the hagiographies of Mao. They're exactly the same. I, I love the way they do these. They portray Chinese leaders as as very slow witted, almost simpletons, like like Forrest Gump like in in, <laughs> in 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 personality. Mao was depicted that way, and now Deng is also depicted that way. He, he likes. People all around him are talking, and he's just kind of looking with serene. It's the Taoist leader. Yeah, it's the Taoist, and he says one word, and he's sort of, you know, very slow and simple. But what's what's interesting is Chauncey that it, it's, it's covering this area that has never been covered in the, the movies, you know, in the, in the movie record. And it's, it's touching on historical figures that are right on the edge of, of, of sensitivity, you know, uh, uh, and at least mentions all the way and also Hua Guofeng and, and of course the, the Surinbang and everything like this and, and you know Mao so it's, it's very oh, interesting my, to just my dad so, actually went to uh, to high school no was it high school or, or elementary no. school no with one of the Surinbang oh the really for, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Huh, that's very interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, anyway, I mean, it's it's fun to watch. It's very interesting, and it's politically somewhat interesting. And I'm just totally hooked on it because uh, it's just I don't know. It's it's a totally fascinating peep into the minor tweaks and changes that the, the what media is now allowed to. to Ra- talk Rachel Liu just wrote a really good piece for Tea Leaf Nation Foreign Policy about this TV series I saw today. It's it's that's doing what she does best. She she does really mm-hmm. sort of great yeah, write ups about. Uh, you know, pop culture stuff, television shows, and how they're received, and you know how they're being talked about on social media. It's really good, really good, really good piece. Congrats, Rachel. J- Jeremiah, what do you have for us? Well, I am also in love with the Deng Xiaoping miniseries. I love the fact that it ends neatly enough in 1984. Oh, yeah. I love the <laughs> fact that my man Hua Guofeng gets on TV, even if they actually say that it was Mao's idea to arrest the Gang of Four. So they took away Hua's big well, moment. Well, he said he, they said he would have done that. He would have he, done it. He would have, have uh, if he toppled had, them. Yeah. If he had Whatever Mao would but have I, done. Is, but yeah. since but since David decided to to take the Deng Xiaoping biopic, I want a uh, miniseries. I want to call people's attention to a much older one, almost ten years old now, that I still think is one of the best series ever done by Chinese television on history. It's available in most DVD stores, although it had a very I know fraught broadcast history. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, marching to the Republic. Yes, yeah, that's very that's good. It is, very and, good. and if you want to talk about this, this whole issue of and it's not T versus Young, it is not high, very high production value. Is probably one of the best depictions of some characters like Cixi, the Empress Dowager, that have been committed to Chinese film. And it is, it is available in most DVD stores. 
um, around and, Beijing. And, and it's online, too. It is yeah, also online. Yeah. And there's actually, uh, we can put the link there, but there is a, a, a historian has actually done kind of an episode-by-episode episode summary guide. So those of peop- for those who, who's Chinese may be not quite good enough to follow the whole thing, there's a summary guide he has online. I can do the link to it. Yeah. So if you want to watch it and kind of figure out, like, who the hell is that and why do they care about the yeah. parrot that just died? It'll, well, that's the first there. episode, right? Yeah. The very first yeah. episode, yeah. So, so someday we'll be able to just teach a history course with just TV series. I mean, we're almost there now. You could teach everything from the late Qing to the present with just TV series. Well, I've been learning my uh, history of the entire Cold War period recently through audio books. Uh, so it's, it's almost <laughs> bad, and, and that takes me to my recommendation, for, for the, which are a couple of spy books, one a spy novel, um, one I'd, I'd read before, but I've revisited because I just love it so much. It's called The Company, a novel of the CIA by Robert Littell. Oh. Uh, have you read, read that? I read it, I heard it's, that, it's, yeah. it's just phenomenal. I love it. I mean, uh, it stretches all the way from, you know, the, the, the late days of the OSS all the way to, uh, I mean, actually... Yeltsin put um, I'm sorry, Putin puts in a little <laughs> little a little peer appearance at the very end. It's a huge huge novel, forty plus hours as an audio book. So I've had a lot of plane travel of late, so a lot of time to enjoy it. Uh, and then uh, the other is a, a recent book by Ben McIntyre called A Spy Among Friends, which is about James Jesus Angleton and uh, Nicholas Elliott and the Kim Philby affair, which is I just never get tired of reading about that. It's a huge piece of the of of the whole book the company as well but it's just for those of you who haven't read about the history of kim kim philby um it, he's just it, it's hard to believe that this this actually really did happen but a soviet mole uh who who was from you know a very young age in his early 20s recruited uh, to uh spy on 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 the uk and made it very high up into the confidence of of the highest echelons of of MI6 and of of uh, the CIA. Just fascinating. Before he was finally exposed, and he actually got away and lived out the rest of his life, dying in the mid 1980s in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Just a fascinating character. Uh, really good book. Can I can I just mention one something real quick? Sure, uh, absolutely. I hope that I can get uh, Dave or Grace to put this photo on the, the, the pop-up page for this episode. But I, I just wanted to just shout out here to someone who's not with us anymore. Uh, I happen to have met the great-granddaughter of Zhang Zhidong, the one who oh coined the, the phrase that we've been using. The, the, and so I have here, uh, 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 the, his granddaughter's name is, was Gao Ru. Uh-huh. And she was, I don't know, 70-something. She had had a stroke and when she did this calligraphy. Which is Wow. And I asked her to do this, and she did this for me. And oh I have it at gosh. home. So I'm just going to put this up on the pop up uh, site as a tribute oh, that's, to that's, her. That's, that's she died yeah, last year, but I thought that was a, a nice. Uh, you know, she's got a very nice hand. Yeah, she's it's pretty good for, for, uh, for 70 and, yeah, for a 70 and stroke, stroke victim. victim right. yeah. So, Gauru, thanks a lot. <laughs> All right. Thinking of her. Great, great, great. And uh, folks, I'm going to be traveling next week, but Jeremy will be taking over the show, and uh, you'll hear some of his potty mouth peeking punditry. Uh, Jeremiah, thanks for joining, man. Thanks, Kaiser. And David, as usual. Thank you. Uh, let's go get a beer, and uh, we'll see you next week on the Cynic Podcast. Take care. Just one? Yeah.